0: This episode of the OrthoBullets Audio Review Podcast will go over the topic of metastatic disease of the extremity from the pathology section on OrthoBullets.com. Metastatic cancer is the most common reason for a destructive bone lesion in adults. The following malignant bone tumors occur most frequently in patients 40 to 80 years old, and in order of decreasing frequency, they are metastatic bone disease, myeloma, lymphoma, Paget's sarcoma and post-radiation sarcoma. The skeleton is a common site for metastases from several visceral carcinomas. To remember the carcinomas that commonly spread to bone, think of BLT-PK, if you tend to remember clean mnemonics, or PT Barnum Loves Kids, if you tend to remember somewhat creepier mnemonics. In either case, the sources of metastases to bone include breast, lung, thyroid, prostate, and kidney. Bone is the third most common site of metastases behind the lung and liver. Metastatic bone lesions are usually found in older patients that is over 40 years old. The most common site of METs is the spine, and within the spine, the thoracic spine is the most common site of bony metastases. The second most common site of METs is the proximal femur, and within the proximal femur, 50% of metastatic lesions occur in the femoral neck. 20% in the peritrochanteric region and 30% in the subtrochanteric region. And although the proximal femur is the second most common site of METS after the spine, it is the most common site of fractures secondary to metastatic bone lesions and have a 65% nonunion rate. The third most common site of METS is the humerus. The mechanism of bone destruction or osteolysis is caused by tumor-induced activation of osteoclasts which occurs through the rank-rank ligand osteoprotegrin pathway. While tumor cells may stimulate osteoclasts in the process of tumor cell osteolysis, this is not a necessary step for metastases. Tumor cells do not directly stimulate osteoclasts, they indirectly stimulate them through osteoblast stromal cell production of cytokines like rank L. One other related point to mention on the topic of osteolysis and the mechanism of bone destruction is that PTHRP-positive breast cancer cells activate osteoblastic rank L production. As far as osteoblastic bone metastases, endothelin-1, or ET1, has been shown to be a crucial protein involved in the formation of osteoblastic bone metastases, like those caused by prostate cancer or certain types of breast cancer. While the mechanistic explanation for this process isn't completely understood, it is known that tumor-produced endothelin-1 is a necessary step in the development of osteoblastic metastases. Mohammed and Geiss described their cell culture and mouse experiments which led to this discovery. Specifically, tumor-produced cell media containing tumor-produced factors like endothelin-1 had the ability to induce osteoblastic bone metastases in mice treated with this culture media. In addition, this process was specifically inhibited by treatment with antagonists to endothelin-1, confirming the role of endothelin-1 in osteoblastic metastases. So in summary, osteoblastic bone metastases are due to tumor-secreted endothelin-1. One important associated condition with metastatic disease to remember is metastatic hypercalcemia, which is a medical emergency. Symptoms of metastatic hypercalcemia include confusion, muscle weakness, polyuria and polydipsia, nausea-vomiting, and dehydration. Treatment for metastatic hypercalcemia is volume expansion through hydration, loop diuretics, and bisphosphonates. The life expectancy of patients with metastatic skeletal lesions is an important concept to understand in order to correctly counsel patients regarding expectations. The life expectancy of patients with metastatic lung carcinoma is shorter than all the other metastatic cancers with less than 50% of patients surviving more than six months from diagnosis of skeletal metastasis. In general, patients with breast, thyroid, and prostate carcinoma live longer than patients with other metastatic lesions, and patients with renal cell carcinoma have a variable life expectancy depending on their medical condition at the time of diagnosis. The median survival in patients with various types of metastatic bone disease include as follows. Lung at six months, Renal, which is variable depending on medical condition, but may be as short as six months or as long as four to five years with isolated bone metastases. Breast cancer at 24 months. Prostate cancer at 40 months. And finally, with generally the best prognosis is thyroid cancer at 48 months. So try to remember that lung is last and thyroid is on top as far as prognosis goes. The principles of metastasis are an extremely important concept to remember. Malignant cell metastasis requires tumor cell entravization, aka entry into blood vessels. It also needs avoidance of immune surveillance, target tissue localization, extravasation into the target tissue, induction of angiogenesis, genomic instability, and decreased apoptosis. With respect to tumor cell intravasation, cadherin is a cell adhesion molecule on tumor cells that modulates release from the primary tumor focus into the bloodstream, and platelet-derived growth factor, PDGF, promotes tumor migration. With respect to target tissue localization, chemokine ligand 12 or CXCL12 in the stromal cells of the bone marrow act as a homing chemokine to certain tumor cells and promotes targeting of bone. The tumor cells then attaches to the target organ's endothelial layer via integrin cell adhesion molecules which is expressed on tumor cells. As far as extravasation into the target tissue, tumor cells use matrix metalloproteinases, or MMPs, to invade the basement membrane and extracellular matrix. Ultimately, induction of angiogenesis will occur via vascular endothelial growth factor, or VEGF, expression. Apoptosis is programmed cell death and tumor cells are known for their decreased rate of apoptosis. This allows for tumor cell sustained growth even after induction of cellular signals known to induce apoptosis in non-neoplastic cells. Thrombospondin is a glycoprotein that inhibits tumor growth, and since tumors overexpressing thrombospondin-1 typically grow slower, they exhibit less angiogenesis and have fewer metastases, which is why thrombospondin-1 is an attractive target for cancer treatment. With respect to the vascular spread of tumor cells, Batson's vertebral plexus is a valveless venous plexus of the spine that provides a route of metastasis from organs to axial structures including vertebral bodies, the pelvis the skull, and proximal limb girdles. Metastatic bony lesions that occur distal to the elbows or knees are most likely to occur from primary lung and kidney tumors. The exact molecular mechanism for this metastatic pattern is not known, but arterial tree metastasis is thought to be the mechanism by which lung and renal cancer spread to the distal extremities. It's unknown if acral metastases, which means mets to distal portions of the limbs, it's unknown if this pattern of metastasis in isolation confers a negative prognosis or if it's merely a reflection of an aggressive tumor. However, when encountered, long-term survival is unlikely. As far as the mechanism of bone lysis, oncogenic cells release cytokines like IL-6, IL-11, PTHRP, and TGF-beta. PTHRP and TGF-beta activate osteoblasts, and then osteoblasts secrete rank L, which then in turn binds to rank on osteoclasts and subsequently activates osteoclasts to resorb bone. As far as the mechanism of bone sclerosis from prostate and or breast metastatic lesions, prostate cancer cells typically secrete endothelin-1, ET1, then ET1 binds to endothelin-A receptor on osteoblasts, which stimulates osteoblasts. ET1 also decreases the Wnt pathway suppressor, DKK1, which subsequently activates the Wnt pathway and increases osteoblast activity. With respect to symptoms of metastatic disease, pain may be mechanical pain due to bone destruction or tumorogenic pain, which often occurs at night. Pathologic fractures occur at presentation in eight to 30% of patients with metastatic disease. Notable findings on physical exam of someone with metastatic disease are neurologic deficits caused by compression of the spinal cord with metastatic disease to the spine. Workup for an older patient with a single bone lesion and unknown primary includes imaging, labs, and biopsy. Rugraf et al. prospectively obtained medical history, physical examination, routine laboratory analysis, which would include CBC with differential, ESR, basic metabolic panel liver function tests, calcium, serum phosphorus, alkaline phosphatase, serum and urine immunoelectrophoresis, that is SPEP and UPEP, and as far as radiology, plain radiography in two planes of the affected bone and chest should be done. Findings on radiographs of metastatic lesions are usually purely lytic or mixed lytic slash blastic lesions. Lung, thyroid, and renal are primarily lytic. 60% of breast cancer is blastic and 90% of prostate cancer is also blastic. So just remember P and B Prostate and breast are primarily plastic. Remember that cortical mets are common in lung cancer. And again, lesions distal to the elbow and knee are usually from a lung or renal primary cancer. A whole body technetium 99M phosphonate bone scan should be done according to RUGRAF et al. And on that note, it's important to remember myeloma and thyroid cancer are often cold on bone scan and these should be evaluated with a skeletal survey. And finally, CT of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis should be done, and this may also be helpful in identifying metastatic lesions to the spine. And also, MRI may be useful to show neurologic compromise of the spine. Rugraf et al. found this diagnostic strategy discovered the primary site 85% of the time, In contrast, the biopsy alone, without the workup, discovered the primary tumor only 35% of the time. With that being said, in patients where a primary carcinoma is not identified, obtaining a biopsy is necessary to rule out a primary bone lesion and must be performed to rule out primary bone malignancy before definitive treatment is performed. In general, you should never treat a bone lesion without tissue diagnosis of that lesion. An important point to remember is that metastatic adenocarcinoma found on biopsy that is not identified by CT of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis is most likely from a small cell carcinoma of the lung as the primary tumor. New lesions which are not diagnosed by imaging and require surgical intervention need to have an appropriate biopsy with treatment dictated by the results of that biopsy. This can't be stressed enough. Let's say, for example, a 65-year-old female with a 100-pack-year tobacco history presents with a new painful lytic lesion in her femoral diaphysis. Even if this patient has a known history of primary lung cancer, if there's no history of biopsy-proven bone metastasis, even though metastatic disease is the most common cause of a destructive bone lesion in adults, we can't just assume the lesion is a metastatic lung lesion in this case, because incorrect treatment of this lytic lesion could both affect overall morbidity and mortality, as a lytic high-grade chondrosarcoma, for example, may look exactly like a metastatic lytic lesion, but it would actually require wide surgical excision, not just stabilization of an impending pathologic fracture. Sending femoral reamings is not an appropriate biopsy technique as intramedullary nailing of a chondrosarcoma would be disastrous and would significantly contaminate the abductors, skin, and femoral canal not to mention spread the tumor the entire length of the bone, which would likely require a major amputation slash joint disarticulation, not a limb salvage operation. On that note, an open biopsy may be followed by intramedullary stabilization under the same anesthetic if the lesion can be confirmed as a carcinoma by the surgical pathologist. However, if carcinoma cannot be confirmed, no further treatment is indicated until final pathology is available for review. As far as histology of metastatic disease goes, characteristic findings include epithelial cells in clumps or glands in a fibrous stroma, immunohistochemical stains that are positive include keratin, CK7 for breast and lung cancer, and TTF1 for lung cancer. Receptor status can also be extremely important in providing therapeutic targets during concomitant medical management, estrogen, progesterone, and HER2 new receptor status is essential for treating metastatic breast cancer. Coleman reviews the skeletal complications of malignant bone disease, discussing pathogenesis, pain generators, and potential treatment regimens. Specifically, patients with bone metastases tend to outlive patients with visceral involvement. Management aimed at prevention of fracture or treatment of bone-related cancer pain can significantly improve the cancer-related morbidity associated with their diagnosis. Aggressive treatment with bisphosphonates has been shown to improve quality of life and decrease skeletally related events. Non-operative management of metastatic disease include bisphosphonate therapy, which provides symptomatic care by preventing osteoclastic bone destruction, IV pomidronate is most commonly used, and as far as chemotherapy, breast, lung, thyroid, prostate, and renal cancers are all sensitive to chemotherapy. As far as radiotherapy, Again, they are all sensitive, however higher doses are typically needed for renal cancers and radioiodine must be used in thyroid cancers. As far as hormone therapy, none are hormone sensitive other than breast cancers and androgen deprivation therapy is often used for prostate cancers. Ruegraf and others discuss the indications for operative treatment in patients with metastatic carcinoma. They argue the decision whether to perform prophylactic surgery depends on 1, the biologic activity of the bone lesion, 2, the responsiveness of the bone lesion to medical and radiation therapy, 3, the anatomic location of the bone metastasis, 4, patient factors such as overall health status, expected length of survival, compliance, and patient expectations and needs. They explore these four issues in detail and recommend a clinical approach to patients with skeletal metastases. Under the umbrella of operative intervention, the major topics to discuss include preoperative embolization for certain cancers, stabilization of a complete fracture with postoperative radiation, and prophylactic stabilization of an impending fracture with postoperative radiation. Preoperative arteriography and embolization is indicated in patients with things like renal cell carcinoma or thyroid carcinoma prior to operative intervention because these cancers are hypervascular and have a propensity to bleed profusely. As far as stabilization of a pathological fracture, the goals of surgical treatment are of course that the patient survives the operation, immediate full weight bearing, and that implant survival is greater than patient survival. Most complete fractures are treated if operative stabilization leads to improved quality of life. The fixation method depends of course on the location of the lesion and we will go into that shortly. All patients will require post-op radiation unless death is imminent or if the area has previously been irradiated. Typically, radiation therapy begins shortly after surgery to decrease pain, slow progression, and treat remaining tumor burden not removed at surgery. And the area of irradiation should include the entire fixation device, For example, the entire femur after intramedullary nailing of the femoral lesion. As far as prophylactic fixation of a pathologic fracture, several methods exist to predict the risk of pathologic fracture. These include the presence of significant functional pain and greater than 50% destruction of cortical bone. Formal staging systems include Harrington's criteria and Morell's criteria. Harrington's criteria states prophylactic fixation of a pathologic lesion should occur when there's greater than 50% destruction of diaphyseal cortices, greater than 50 to 75% destruction of metaphysis that is greater than 2.5 centimeters, permeative destruction of the subtrochanteric femoral region, and persistent pain following irradiation. Morell's criteria is based on four characteristics. One, the site of the lesion. Two, pain associated with the lesion. 3, the nature of the lesion, and 4, size of the lesion. All the features were assigned progressive scores ranging from 1 to 3. In general, his criteria states lesions with scores of 7 or lower can be safely irradiated without risk of fracture, while lesions with scores of 8 or higher require prophylactic internal fixation prior to irradiation. The site of the lesion includes three categories, upper extremity, lower extremity, and peritrochanteric area of the femur. These sites were assigned increasing scores from one to three, respectively, and it is commonly thought that lesions in the peritrochanteric area are high risk for fracture. And it is also believed chances of pathologic fractures are greater for weight-bearing bones than for non-weight-bearing bones. The nature of the lesion is also subdivided into three categories with increasing scores one to three, blastic, mixed, and lytic, respectively. Size of the lesion is expressed as a fraction of the cortical thickness. Progressively increasing scores from 1 to 3 are assigned to lesion slash cortex ratios of less than 1 third, 1 to 2 thirds, and greater than 2 thirds. Pain is the only subjective variable in this classification system. Mild, moderate, or functional pain is assigned scores from 1 to 3, respectively. Jakovsky et al. discussed the evaluation and treatment of metastatic pathologic lesions and fractures of the proximal femur. They report 50% will be at the femoral neck, 30% at the inner trochanteric region, and 20% at the subtrochanteric region. They recommend optimal treatment consists of a stable implant that protects the entire bone and will allow for immediate weight-bearing, as up to 50% of pathologic fractures may not heal. Prophylactic fixation is preferred to fixation of an actual pathological fracture due to shorter operative time, decreased morbidity, and quicker recovery. The goals of prophylactic fixation is to maximize ability for immediate mobilization and weight bearing, protect the entire bone in the setting of systemic or metastatic disease, and optimize implant choice in the context of the patient's overall prognosis. The type of fixation depends on location of the lesion and the type of disease. A lesion in the proximal humerus typically requires an endoprosthesis, A lesion in the diaphysis of the humerus can be stabilized with an intramedullary nail or resection and intercalary spacer or plates and screws, which is less preferred. Distal humerus lesions can be stabilized with flexible nails or an elbow replacement. Peritrochanteric and subtrochanteric lesions are typically stabilized by a statically locked intramedullary or cephalomedullary nail with curatage and cement and femoral head slash neck lesions are typically stabilized with hemiarthroplasty for intracapsular lesions. A long stem may be used if a distal lesion is present, and total hip arthroplasty would be considered for cases with acetabular involvement. Complications of these operative interventions include dislocation of the prosthesis, which occurs more in total hip arthroplasty than in hemiarthroplasty, infection, which is higher for total hip arthroplasty and hemiarthroplasty than for nails, and there is a risk of non-union of fractures that are treated with cephalomedullary nails. That's all for this review on metastatic disease of the extremity. This is the OrthoBullets audio review, a podcast by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Visit orthobullets.com or download the Bullets app on your iPhone or Android device for topics, questions, techniques, videos, and much more.